Hello everyone, and thanks for joining me for Historical Insights. I'm your host, Jordan Collier. As August 1864 drew to a close, General Sherman was moving his forces to cut off the last remaining railroad leading into Atlanta, converging on the village of Jonesboro. It was the climax of the Atlanta campaign. Nearly four full months of fighting, a summer's worth of bloodshed, from Dalton and Risaka to Kennesaw and Ezra Church, were culminating in this moment. Confederate General John Bill Hood understood perfectly that the fate of Atlanta was now at hand. Even as he dispatched two corps under Generals Hardy and S.D. Lee to challenge federal possession of Jonesboro, before the final die was even cast, he gave Lee his own orders to return and cover the evacuation of the city in the event that General Hardy should fail to prevent its capture. Hood's strategy in this contingency was partially hobbled by one important consideration— guarding the veritable army's worth of federal prisoners at Andersonville and preventing their liberation at the hands of the Union Army. In February 1865, Hood explained in his retrospective report that he feared if the federal army liberated the prisoners, they might then be armed and set loose to wreak havoc upon the country. Quote, the failure necessitated the evacuation of Atlanta. 34,000 prisoners at Andersonville, Georgia, in my rear, compelled me to place the army between them and the enemy. A raid of cavalry could have easily released those prisoners, and the Federal commander was prepared to furnish them arms. Such a body of men, an army of itself, could have overrun and devastated the country from West Georgia to Savannah. End quote. Given the shockingly emaciated condition of the prisoners, which was discovered after their eventual liberation, I personally find the notion that any of them might overrun anything to be perfectly absurd. Nevertheless, the Confederates were not successful in preventing the Union Army from taking Jonesboro. Hood partly blamed General William Joseph Hardy for dropping the ball, but in truth, it was too little too late. With retaining Atlanta contingent upon perpetually preventing federal possession of the railroad to Marietta, it was only a matter of time before the city became untenable. Otherwise, they would have had to drive the federal army out of Georgia entirely, and the opportunity to do that had realistically been lost far north of the city early in the campaign. And as Sherman captured Jonesboro, thus possessing all rail lines into the city, for the Confederates holding on to Atlanta instantly became obsolete. During the night of Thursday, September 1st, 1864, and into the wee hours on Friday, Atlanta was abandoned with a bang, literally. Sherman recalled that fateful night in his memoir, quote, that night I was so restless and impatient that I could not sleep, and about midnight there arose toward Atlanta sounds of shells exploding, and other sound like that of musketry. I walked to the house of a farmer close by my bivouac, called him out to listen to the reverberations which came from the direction of Atlanta, twenty miles to the north of us, and inquired of him if he had resided there long. He said he had, and that these sounds were just like those of a battle. An interval of quiet then ensued, 
when again, about 4 a.m., arose other similar explosions. But I still remained in doubt whether the enemy was engaged in blowing up his own magazines, or whether General Slocum had not felt forward and become engaged in a real battle." End quote. The explosions were indeed the result of an ordnance train being scuttled. Hood seems to have been bitter about its destruction even five months later. Quote, On the night of the 1st of September, we withdrew from Atlanta. A train of ordnance stores and some railroad stock had to be destroyed in consequence of the gross neglect of the chief quartermaster to obey the specific instructions given him touching their removal. He had ample time and means, and nothing whatever ought to have been lost. End quote. Sherman, for his part, wasted no time occupying the city and disposing of public property there for government use. From Lovejoy Station on September 3rd, in his characteristic fiery style, Sherman directed, quote, Move all the stores forward from Alatoona and Marietta to Atlanta. Take possession of all good buildings for government purposes, and see that they are not used as quarters. Advise the people to quit now. There can be no trade or commerce now until the war is over. Let Union families go to the north with their effects, and Secesh families move on. All cotton is tainted with treason, and no title in it will be respected. It must all go to Nashville as United States property, and pretended claimants may collect testimony for the pursuit of the proceeds of sale after they reach the U.S. Treasury and money. End quote. This is a watershed moment in the war of monumental import. The significance of the capture of Atlanta was well documented at the time and by historians since. It's largely understood that Sherman's success in Georgia secured Lincoln's re-election in 1864. Lincoln, as late as August 23rd, addressed his cabinet pessimistically, quote, It seems exceedingly probable that this administration will not be re-elected, end quote. The opposition party, the Democrats, though themselves splintered, flirted with the idea of peace at all costs, even up to recognizing Confederate independence. The carnage throughout the summer had been too ghastly, especially in the Virginia theater, where there appeared to be little progress in exchange for the bloodshed. But now, with the signal victory at Atlanta, suddenly there began to shine a light at the end of the tunnel. Grant even began to speak about the end of the war, and Lincoln issued a proclamation of thanksgiving to the Almighty. The Confederacy would capitulate sooner or later, and the Union would prevail. Now the end game began, but the bloodshed was far from over. It would be hasty for us as modern observers, blinded by the benefit of knowing the outcome of the war, to underestimate the desperation of the struggle to come, or the delicate volatility of what was still hanging in the balance. Indeed, even as the fate of Atlanta was decided, a sideshow to the drama was heating up and steadily becoming more threatening to the status quo in Tennessee and North Alabama. And the decisions made now will reverberate in the months to come, as the war in the West rises from a deceptive simmer to a feverish boil that will ultimately help to seal the fate of the rebellion itself. 
By Monday morning, September 6th, news of the capture of Atlanta was printed in newspapers across the country. And virtually everywhere, alongside the headlines of the Union victory, were reports of General Wheeler causing a ruckus in Tennessee. On the front page of the New York Times on September 3rd, under the headline, Reports from Nashville, were printed up-to-the-minute updates of Wheeler's raid in Middle Tennessee, with varying degrees of accuracy. For example, the Nashville correspondent providing the update states Wheeler had captured Franklin, Tennessee. Wheeler, in his own report, does not claim to have taken possession of Franklin. He's more interested in demonstrating that, although assailed by superior forces under command of General Russo, his own forces inflicted heavier losses upon the Union side than they did upon him, a claim which by now should be a tired refrain to our ears. But it's clear, even in Wheeler's own description, that his cavalry were in flight, and skirmishes they had with the Federals were not intended to take possession of anywhere, but were rather to cover their retrograde movements south of the Tennessee River, damaging the railroad tracks along the way where they could. The purpose of Wheeler's raid was not in any way to retake or threaten federal possession of Middle Tennessee. It was to cause as much havoc as possible, and then quickly get the heck out of there. Misinformation, vague information, contradictions, obscurities, and uncertainty were by no means limited to the press. They were widespread within the army itself. Even with an extensive telegraphic network providing the very latest updates on military developments around the network at the speed of light, the need for information often outpaced the ability to keep that information 100% accurate. And the speed with which information could travel over the wire meant that unsubstantiated reports and rumors traveled just as quickly as established fact. Commanders and correspondents alike seemed to simply pass along and parrot what information came through the wire without any attempt to verify it. Some newspapers, North and South, even recommended outright caution to their readers and expressed an underlying reluctance to publish recent developments, the fall of Atlanta specifically, because of the prevalence of misinformation spread over the telegraph wires. The Daily Milwaukee News expressly stated, quote, the report should be received with caution, end quote, but then further down clarified, quote, the news is fully confirmed, end quote. Sometimes commanders were indeed skeptical of the information that reached them by telegraph. One officer, a Lieutenant Colonel Theodore Trauernicht at Johnsonville, Tennessee, some 130 river miles downstream of Florence, passed along a rumor on September 7th, quote, Colonel Matzdorf, commanding at Waverly, says 1,500 of Wheeler's men are marching toward this place with the intention of procuring provisions and crossing the Tennessee River, end quote. This rumor was so spurious that headquarters at Nashville responded with rare skepticism and questioned the informant's credibility. Quote, Where are the 1,500 men of Wheeler's command? What are Colonel Matzdorf's sources of information? The last we heard of Wheeler, he was making his way rapidly toward Florence, closely pursued by the combined forces of Generals Russo, Milroy, Granger, and Starkweather. End quote. Trauernicht was by no means the only officer repeating gossip as fact on the wire. 
On September 10th, Major General Steedman told Russo, quote, I have no confidence in the information from Starkweather, for I am satisfied he transmits every idle rumor that reaches him as information, end quote. What we see evidenced in these examples, and many other examples, is essentially a web of hearsay that makes it difficult for a modern reader to follow exactly who was doing what, where, and when. And for an officer at the time, it must have been a maddeningly impossible rat's nest to decipher. And as with the previous examples, the chain of informants is often preserved in these dispatches, where the commander relaying the telegraphic report to their superior officer includes the name and or original message of the subordinate, who is ostensibly the original source of information, but is more than likely just another link in the gossip chain. Further ambiguities, repeated as truth in the federal correspondence at this time, involve the whereabouts of General Roddy. Reading the official records, it's clear that sources had an overactive tendency to see Roddy where he was not, and prematurely anticipate his movements. For example, at 10.20 a.m. on August 26th, Colonel Spaulding reported to Nashville, quote, The following dispatch has just been received from Lieutenant Colonel Thornborough, commanding 1st Brigade, 4th Division Cavalry Army of the Cumberland. Indications are that Roddy is preparing to cross Tennessee River between Elk River and Florence with about 2,000 men. End quote. Ironically, three days later, on the 29th, even higher up the chain of command, Major General Russo passed along to the headquarters a message from General Granger, placing part of Roddy's force nearly 75 miles downstream of where Spaulding said Thurnborough said they were. Quote, General Granger reports a part of Roddy's and Forrest's force across the river near Savannah, with nine regiments near Tuscumbia preparing to cross at Bledsoe. End quote. Later that day, a second dispatch from Granger, relayed via General Russo, clarifies the intelligence regarding Roddy's plans and says nothing more about the supposed force near Savannah. Quote, General Granger telegraphs that Roddy, with 3,000 men and nine pieces of artillery, is preparing to cross the Tennessee in boats and, if possible, at the shoals. End quote. And from Chattanooga, no less than 150 miles from the locations purported in the intelligence, General Steedman telegraphed an amalgamation of these dispatches to Sherman himself the next day on August 30th. Quote, General Granger reports portion of Roddy's and Forrest's forces north of the Tennessee, near Savannah, with nine regiments preparing to cross at Bledsoe, near Tuscumbia. End quote. Confusingly, 48 hours later, on September 1st, Granger sent a report to Nashville stating, quote, Roddy has crossed at Bainbridge with 2,000 men and five or six pieces of artillery, end quote. This seems to be a summary of a longer report received the same day from General Starkweather at Pulaski, whose scouts had returned and whose intel he passed to General Granger, stating, quote, Scout from Florence has just returned, met the enemy near Bainbridge Ferry yesterday at about 10 a.m., attacked them, was successful in first charge, driving them, killing three, first fire. Enemy fell back. Scouts followed until they struck the main body, where the scouts were driven 
been back, with the loss of seven men, one killed, one mortally wounded, balance missing. Enemy must have suffered severely in both attacks, from all accounts, conflicting statements as to their artillery. Some told the scouts four and some six pieces, and the force ran from 500 to 2,000. I am satisfied it is the force I reported to you through my Savannah scout. I have sent to Fayetteville scouts, also to Florence, to learn all that is possible as to the enemy's movements, numbers, etc. I understand that 3rd Tennessee has been sent to Athens from your dispatch. Unless I hear from you to the contrary, I shall make my headquarters at Elk River Bridge, moving at about 6 p.m. Cannot a telegraph operator be sent to Elk River Bridge? End quote. From his own response to this dispatch, it appears Granger did not equate the rebels who skirmished with General Starkweather's scouts at Bainbridge with Roddy per se, which makes his dispatch to Nashville confusing. In response to Starkweather, Granger amusingly quipped, quote, This looks like a great scattering of the flock. Roddy was at Lamb's Ferry yesterday with about 1,600 men, end quote. When combined with the dispatch of August 30th, the substance of Granger's intel is that Roddy was at Bledsoe on the 30th, Lamb's Ferry the next day while also crossing at Bainbridge, and Bainbridge Ferry the next day again after that. So what's going on here? What explains the far-flung and widely varying reports of the whereabouts of Roddy and his forces? Personally, I think Granger's comment about a great scattering of the flock is a clue. Roddy's forces were apparently not unified into a single cohesive group, but rather operated as semi-autonomous bands, who all nominally answered to him. We've seen this type of setup before, actually, such as when the 9th Illinois, Colonel Rowett's regiments, split up into detachments back in May 1864. It's possible, then, that when Roddy's forces were simultaneously reported at Bledsoe and Savannah, Tennessee, these represented two detachments of Roddy's force, and the intel was accurate. Of course, it's also possible that a combination of rumor, speculation, and hypervigilance led scouts to pass along hearsay and gossip as fact. We've seen before, as well, how the anxious anticipation of a notorious commander crossing north of the river, such as Forrest, also in May 1864, led observers to over-identify incidences of his presence, something akin to thinking every bump in the night is a burglar. We can surmise from reading Confederate reports that Roddy himself, at least, was probably not at Savannah, Bledsoe, Bainbridge, or Lambs Ferry when the Federal Gossip Chain placed him there. About a week after Granger and Starkweather were reporting Roddy at Bainbridge on September 6th, Roddy sent the following message to General Wheeler from his headquarters at Cortland. Quote, The general is very much indisposed, but will take the saddle and join you, and will be at Lamb's Ferry by daylight. He has ordered Colonel Johnson to report to you. Colonel Patterson's brigade is tonight at Gilchrist's, ready to cross. He has been ordered to communicate with you. Gilchrist's opposite mouth of Elk, your former crossing. There are three good boats at Lamb's Ferry that will carry artillery. There are four boats at Bainbridge, which is the best crossing. Any of these will carry artillery. There are a number of other boats below Bainbridge, the location of which Colonel Johnson knows better than he does, and can give you more information about them than I can. End quote. 
The substance of this communication implies that neither Roddy nor any portion of his force was as yet across the river on September 6th. It's possible the force Starkweather described was itself merely a scouting-up expedition, meant to ascertain the strength of the Federal patrols, or perhaps even the whereabouts of General Wheeler. Roddy's correspondence doesn't specify. But it is clear as well, however, that relatively accurate information about the strength and disposition of the Federal forces was available to General Roddy, as he here continues, quote, the general directs me to say that he believes the enemy can be defeated without hazard north of the river, between Chattanooga and Pulaski, that the mounted force does not exceed 2,000, and that the infantry force at each garrison has not left their stockades for several days, and that they are mostly Negroes and feebly garrisoned. End quote. As we've seen previously, Confederate observers' remark on the fact that the Union Army was using black servicemen to garrison blockhouses as evidence of their vulnerability. Roddy also was explicitly clear that destroying as much of the railroad as possible remained the paramount objective of the movement of his forces north of the river, followed closely to acting in concert with Wheeler. Quote, Colonel Patterson's orders from General Roddy were to cross the river at the mouth of Elk, pass in between Athens and the river, strike the road, and destroy as far as practicable in the direction of Decatur, then to pass across, striking the road between Decatur and Huntsville, destroying as much as possible, and then passing across, leaving Huntsville to the left, and striking the road between that place and Stevenson. The general directs me to say that you may exercise your own judgment, that you can order him to carry out these orders or to come to your support. He is subject to your orders, and he requests me to say that you will communicate with him. To carry out the orders would prevent the enemy from reinforcing the party in your front and create a diversion in your favor. And besides, the road can be badly damaged in the meantime. The general also directs me to say that if you choose to fight tomorrow, he thinks there is very little difficulty in crossing below Florence, and if, after fighting, you should think it best to cross. Since writing the above, General Roddy directs me to say that he will most probably cross the river in person at Green's Bluff, two miles and a half of Center Star, but will have couriers at Lamb's Ferry also, where he has one section of artillery. End quote. And so... By September 6th, the stage appears to have been set for Roddy to cross north of the Tennessee River, cause havoc on the railroad, and act in concert with Wheeler as he evaded the Federal Army back to the safety of the South Bank. All that remained was the word to be given. However, the word that actually came was a change of plans from the High Command. Removing Roddy was deemed inadvisable, and Forrest would be the one primarily to move north of the river and continue the work of railroad raising. But by then, it had become moot anyway for Roddy to cross north of the river to join Wheeler, because Wheeler was on the verge of retreating to the south bank, pursued closely by federal forces. At 7.40 a.m. on September 6, 1864, General Granger reported that he had arrived in Lawrenceburg, Tennessee, in advance of Russo's main cavalry force that had been pursuing Wheeler south from Nashville. Seven hours later, he had advanced, quote, on Lamb's Ferry Road, 13 and a half miles from Lawrenceburg, end quote. Granger explained what he thought was lying ahead of them. Quote, the enemy is about an hour in advance of us. I have very little doubt, but he will go to the river tonight and attempt to cross. 
As Roddy's command has been up the road, he will keep Roddy as a shield to him while he crosses the river. Roddy will probably be fresh enough to get away. End quote. It is interesting that Granger identified Roddy's force as up the road when Roddy himself the very same day, as we just saw, personally explained to General Wheeler that none of his forces were as yet across the river and he himself was at Cortland. It would seem that if they were moving to cover his retreat, he would have certainly been keen to communicate that fact. It could be, however, that during the day of September 6th, once it became clear that Wheeler was so close by and hotly pursued, Roddy gave orders to cross over and ride to his aid without those orders surviving in the written record. It's a bit less surprising that federal commanders found it so tricky to articulate the movements of their opponents when you realize they had a hard enough time accurately articulating the movements of their own forces. General Starkweather wrote to General Steedman at Pulaski on September 6th, quote, General Granger, with all the mounted command, left here at 2 p.m. to join Major General Russo at Lawrenceburg, end quote. This cannot be true because Granger himself telegraphed at 7.40 a.m. that he was already in Lawrenceburg. Perhaps Starkweather meant 2 a.m. and not p.m., and it was a simple clerical error. Regardless, it underscores what a complicated and sometimes self-contradictory web is woven by the official records, and it becomes more understandable how the people out in the field in the midst of the fluid unfolding situation without the benefit of hindsight could make such substantial errors about who exactly was doing what and where. Adding to the confusion, and hearkening back to Granger's scattering of the flock comment, it becomes evident from reading the reports as well that rebel forces of various commands were widely dispersed, and from the federal perspective seemed to be all around them everywhere at once. It's rather like the difference between a missile and buckshot. We tend to think of Civil War armies as more the former a singular force that directs a concentrated movement against a single target. And this is indeed often the case, especially on the larger fields of battle. Here, however, the Confederate forces were really more akin to the latter. Their small bands scattered across a widespread and vast area, the consequence being that, in sacrificing the greater potency of a concentrated unified force, they gained a wider reach of operations, inflicting the maximum amount of havoc over the largest possible area, and it was practically impossible to pin them down and to defeat them in a single fell swoop. The following dispatch from General Starkweather, also dated September 6th at Pulaski, expresses the hectic and bewildering situation in Middle Tennessee in the first week of September as a combination of direct observation and chains of informants left the scant federal garrisons feeling overrun by rebels everywhere they looked. Quote, I went north to Linville with troops found the enemy there, and drove them away, left two regiments to rebuild railroad track and put up telegraph wire, returned to this point, found lines down south and the enemy destroying railroad, went down, repaired, and communicated with all points south, 
Major General Steedman is twelve miles below here, with five trains of troops. Gave him full and complete information. He will probably be here in the morning. Cannot inform you where William's command is. Bodies of troops all around me demonstrating against the road. Scouting party just in from Mouth of Elk River. Roddy has recrossed his entire force, reported by citizens at 3,000 strong. Part at Mouth of Elk River, and balance crossing at Lamb's Ferry. Dispatch just received to this effect from Colonel John W. Horner, 18th Michigan, at Athens. Scouts sent to find Williams, not yet returned, think they are captured. One outpost here captured today. We are all on half rations, have sent to find out what is here, and will send you what I can. End quote. The next day he summarized the feeling of encirclement even more succinctly. Quote, the enemy is in fact everywhere all around me. End quote. Despite this dizzying and overwhelming array of action, Wheeler's raid was, at the moment, in fact, dying out. Over the next 72 hours, the Confederates would stream across the river with the Federal cavalry ending their pursuit at Florence, with a resulting momentary lull that was, in fact, a very dangerous false sense of security. We are going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll explore ways that Wheeler's Raid impacted lo local people of all walks of life in Lauderdale County, see up-to-the-minute details of the final moments of the pursuit of Wheeler, and set the stage for the next raid that was right on its heels. Please stay with us. By 7.30 on the evening of September 7th, Granger had reached Rogersville. He here describes to General Russo, still bringing up the rear, the fractured and widely scattered condition of the rebel forces. Quote, we are now at Rogersville. On the way here, I ascertained the enemy, 500 or 600 strong, were coming from the direction of the railroad, came into the Lexington and Lawrenceburg Road, one mile and a half from Lexington, passed on, and joined Wheeler at that place about 11 p.m. The men of this force stated that they had been cut off from their command for five or six days. About the same hour last night, crossed the road from Lexington to this place, about five miles this side of Lexington. The men said they were going to join Wheeler. The country is undoubtedly swarming with rebels. Roddy and Johnson are undoubtedly there supporting Wheeler. We fired on their men this morning. Sent a scout to Lamb's Ferry. They have returned. Report having watered their horses in the Tennessee River, and no enemy there. There are evident indications of a train having been there, and then turned down the river toward Bainbridge. Lieutenant Prosser of 2nd Tennessee came in at 4 p.m. Colonel Prosser met enemy's pickets about three miles from Lexington, and drove them into Center Star, about eight miles from Lexington on Florence Road. Wheeler is unquestionably there with his whole force, except four or five hundred. Wheeler does not seem to be in a hurry, and citizens say he will not leave until Williams comes up or he hears from him. I shall start for Athens at 5 a.m. tomorrow. Shall move slowly, as I think possibly the enemy may come into this road from some of the crossroads. End quote. As we've seen before, Union commanders, such as Granger, relied heavily on a combination of scouts, 
captured enemy combatants, and local civilians, who by this time were almost certainly people of color, women, children, and men too old to be conscripted into the rebel army, to give them insight into rebel designs and positions. In an environment where the modus operandi was confusion and secondhand misinformation, any and all sources of first-hand intelligence from the community were vital. Wheeler, for his part, barely provides any detail in his official report concerning this final phase of the raid, which could be symptomatic of the constant rapid movement of his forces. He does explain how, when still about Knoxville, his subordinate, General John Stuart Williams, convinced Wheeler to allow him to take a detachment of two brigades and half of his available artillery on a side quest of sorts to destroy a bridge near Strawberry Plains, Tennessee. Wheeler says, quote, I at first objected to the movement upon the ground that it might cause delay, while rapidity of movement was of the first importance. Upon his further urging the matter, and promising to overtake me that night by traveling by moonlight, I consented. End quote. Williams was unsuccessful in his goal, and also could not manage to follow Wheeler's orders to rejoin the main body. According to Wheeler, General Williams, quote, left me with the balance of my command to carry out the principal part of the expedition with the embarrassment of making numerous delays in endeavoring to bring the troops under General Williams to my assistance, end quote. Finally, at the shoals of the Tennessee River, at the end of the line, Wheeler was still waiting for Williams to rejoin him, as General Granger alluded to in his report from Rogersville. Williams, however, was still freewheeling and insubordinate. Quote, On reaching the Alabama border, and having determined to await General Williams' arrival, I, having sent him several peremptory orders to march on and join me, I sent a dispatch to Corinth, and from there I telegraphed the command in general the progress of my operations, at the same time recommending that the work be continued upon the railroad. To my disappointment, I learned that General Williams had returned to East Tennessee, and carried with him three large regiments which I had sent on detached service, and which by chance met him. End quote. This could explain an otherwise confusing message Sherman sent to Schofield on September 6th. Quote, I hear from Granger at Pulaski that he drove Wheeler from the railroad from Nashville to Decatur, and that he moved east. End quote. In fact, it wasn't Wheeler, but Williams that Granger encountered. It seems then, perhaps, rather than being wholly due to Williams' insubordination, Granger actually thwarted his junction with the main body of Wheeler's force, compelling his retreat back to the east. Starkweather seems to have had a pretty good grasp of this situation, telling Major General Steedman on September 7th, quote, Williams is on east side of railroad, supposed to be moving toward Lamb's Ferry. I think he will strike the other road and move out as he came in, end quote. Steedman by this time was at Athens, and Russo had reached Sugar Creek, 17 miles southeast of Lawrenceburg, and a mile and a half from the Alabama state line. Starkweather explained, quote, At 11 a.m. today, General Russo left Sugar Creek on Lambs Ferry Road in the direction of Gordonsville or Gilbertsboro in search of Williams, and thence above or below Athens as circumstances may require. 700 of Wheeler's men passed down Lambs Ferry Road today. End quote. By September 9th, 
The federal pursuit had thus reached the counties of North Alabama, with the rebels at the river's edge, and swarms of stragglers lost, either accidentally or by design, lingering all over the country. Starkweather, who seems to have had enough time to draft reports, and enough wits about him for those reports to be reliable enough, explained, quote, Major General Russo concentrated all forces of Generals Steedman and Granger with his own at Athens, and has moved on toward Tennessee River again today. Major General Milroy has returned to Tullahoma. Cars will reach Columbia tomorrow going north, all right south. Country is filled with strolling bands of the enemy, who have been lost from their commands, as also those who were part of a Tennessee brigade of enemy, which was disbanded for thirty days. We have news that General Taylor has crossed into Mississippi and is concentrating with Forrest to enter West Tennessee and cross river. Enemies surrounded Clifton last Thursday. My scout arrived direct from Savannah today. All from 15 to 55 have been conscripted in Mississippi. The country there is full of stragglers. Have our hands more than full here. Losses on our part small. End quote. From the federal perspective, the rebels appeared to have scattered like feathers in the wind, swarming all around them. With the exception of the threat of forest just off to the west, it would seem the masses of disorganized Confederates in Middle Tennessee constituted more of a nuisance than any real threat, as Starkweather here explained to General Granger on September 9th. Quote, Enemy and small bands infesting the whole country cannot do much against them as I have no cavalry to spare. End quote. Two days earlier, writing from Columbia, Tennessee, Colonel Sipes had described the situation similarly. Quote, Officers from below report that Wheeler has divided his command and is making for the river at different points. Russo is pursuing with effect and is said to have taken many prisoners. Hundreds of Wheeler's men are deserting. End quote. All in all, Wheeler's Middle Tennessee raid is a confusing situation. It's tricky to unravel as a modern observer, not only for its intrinsic complexity, but also for the simple fact that it was confusing for contemporary observers on the scene. As we've seen, pinpointing the whereabouts, identities, and designs of widespread and swiftly moving bodies of cavalry defied the abilities of even the most objective observers. At this point, however, using the various reports, we can summarize what happened. Wheeler's force was weakened when Williams' detachment failed to reunite with the main body back in East Tennessee. The necessity to keep moving and outrun the Federals outweighed any other consideration, and Williams lagged behind the main body as they moved west in the direction of Nashville. Upon reaching the vicinity of Franklin, south of Nashville, General Russo and the Federal Cavalry began more seriously and directly challenging the Confederate presence. Wheeler was compelled to retreat a safe distance ahead of Russo, requiring even more haste, disrupting the railroad leading south through Columbia where possible, but this was ultimately of secondary importance to removing his army south of the Tennessee River. Meanwhile, Generals Granger and Starkweather, having already been on high alert for a week that Roddy was about to cross to the north side of the river to join Wheeler, mobilized instead against Wheeler himself as he drew closer to the river, Granger first intercepting William's disconnected party, then joining the main line of pursuit at Lawrenceburg, but ahead of General Russo. 
Williams, having thus been prevented from rejoining Wheeler, instead returned toward East Tennessee, gathering scattered detachments as he went. By the time Granger reached Lawrenceburg to join the pursuit, Wheeler's main force was already approaching the river, and his crossing was likely covered by Roddy's force, which had been in communication, and was lying in wait with all the means of crossing the river prepared and ready. As Wheeler moved his force so rapidly through the Union-held country between Nashville and the Tennessee River, men naturally straggled, fell behind, got separated from the main group, or deliberately availed themselves of the opportunity to slip away. From the Federal perspective, they seemed to be infesting the country, to use Starkweather's phrase. While the Confederates were relatively scattered for the moment, the Federal Army had actually concentrated at the Shoals, under Major Generals Russo and Steedman, and Brigadier Generals Granger and Starkweather and Pulaski. Despite making headlines, Federal top brass downplayed the strategic significance of Wheeler's raid. As he wrote his retrospective report after his triumph at Atlanta, Sherman, on September 15th, described Wheeler's actions as little more than a sideshow. Quote, Wheeler may have committed damage to the property of citizens, but he has injured us but little, the railroads being repaired about as fast as he broke them. From Franklin, he has been pursued toward Florence and out of the state by Generals Russo, Steedman, and Granger, but what amount of execution they have done to him has not been reported. End quote. And Grant, when writing his retrospective report of the final campaigns of the war later in the summer of 1865, recalled all that occurred with a single sentence. Quote, the rebel cavalry under Wheeler attempted to cut his communications in the rear, but was repulsed at Dalton and driven into East Tennessee, whence it proceeded west to McMinnville, Murfreesboro, and Franklin, and was finally driven south of the Tennessee. The damage done by this raid was repaired in a few days. End quote. While the damage inflicted by Wheeler may have been minimal, ironically, the most pronounced effect upon the local population here in the Shoals came in the aftermath of the raid at the hands of the Union cavalry. Among the 72 approved claimants to the SCC from Lauderdale County, General Russo ranks as the fourth most commonly named commander who ordered the claimant's property taken, and the majority of such instances are from September 1864. The strategic realities of the cavalry pursuit explain why Russo had to rely so heavily upon the local community when his forces came to a halt at the shoals. With both horses and men to care for, proportionally, cavalry groups had a lot of mouths to feed. Furthermore, the swiftness of their movement meant it was practically impossible to haul, say, a baggage train, which is agonizingly slow-going, much slower than the cavalry can move, along with them to provide their own adequate supplies. Nowhere near what the whole army would require. The men could carry a few days' rations along with themselves and their personal baggage, but that didn't provide for their horses, and after a few days of pursuit, it would have been exhausted anyway. They simply moved too fast to rely on cumbersome 19th century supply lines. They were on their own and had to make do with what they found. And finally, having moved so far from their supply base at Nashville, and with the railroads disrupted, there was no other readily available source of supply than the local population living in the neighborhood where they found themselves. The army had to eat something. 
Some claimants were able to recall the exact day when Russo's men took their property. One of them was Christopher Brewer, the grandfather of famed father of the blues, W.C. Handy, who was enslaved by John Wilson. They resided at the eponymous Wilson's Crossroads, which later became the community of St. Florine. Unlike most other Lauderdale claimants who were enslaved at the beginning of the war, Brewer does not say that he became free upon President Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, but rather that he became free in 1864. He doesn't describe the circumstances, merely that it took place in 1864. His claim specifies that Russo ordered 50 bushels of corn taken from Mr. Brewer's field on September 10, 1864, which coincides precisely with the timeline established in the official records. Mr. Brewer remarked succinctly, quote, the soldiers said they had to have feed, end quote. The probate court judge and slaveholding unionist Thomas Allington also specified September 10th as the day that Rousseau's men took possession of 700 bushels of corn and 4,000 pounds of fodder. They would be back for more before the month was out, but we'll talk about that next time. Allington's claim evinces the intimate knowledge local people could have of the military affairs in the region at large, as he perfectly explained the context which brought Rousseau's men to his cornfield in September 1864. Quote, General Rousseau, in command of a large force of United States cavalry, pursued the rebel General Wheeler out of Middle Tennessee to the Tennessee River, nearly opposite his residence, that said United States cavalry camped in the vicinity of his residence. End quote. Allington's plantation was directly adjacent to Bainbridge Ferry. The petition of Jacob McGee gives astonishing detail as well about the whereabouts of Rousseau's army through Lauderdale County in September 1864. Quote, On or about the 1st of September 1864, officers and soldiers of the command of General Rousseau, whose headquarters was at the time at the residence of John Watkins, about 12 miles north of Florence on the military road. End quote. McGee says he rented a cornfield from John Watkins, from which Russo's command took 200 bushels of corn. William Hill's A History of Green Hill and Some Surrounding Communities, published in 1978, says that John Watkins was a native of Virginia who came to Lauderdale County from Tennessee in 1849 and purchased a stagecoach inn from Samuel Craig, which had been built in 1824. The inn, he says, which was apparently still standing in 1978, was located four miles south of Green Hill on the east side of the military road. Depending on where you start measuring as Green Hill, this places Watkins in more or less in the Lone Cedar community. At 8 a.m. on September 10th, Granger reported that Russo was at Shoal Creek, which would place him within two or three miles of Watkins Inn. John Watkins was my fourth great-grandfather. He was also a petitioner to the SCC, but his claim was barred or disallowed. Fold 3 doesn't have any information in his case file. He died in December 1873 in the midst of the claims process, and it's possible that his heirs chose not to pursue his claim. As we've seen before, the same situation which presented hardship for one person may present another person with an opportunity. 
One claimant, a widow named Barbara Crastell, described how in the summer of 1864, a soldier of the 10th Tennessee Cavalry, USA, came to her home, a four-acre lot just outside the corporate limits of Florence, unable to travel. He then stayed with her for some eight weeks until well enough to join Russo's command. Mrs. Crastell's husband had gone to Kentucky in 1862 to avoid being conscripted into the rebel army. Sadly, he would never return home, dying in Kentucky in 1865. In evidence of her own loyalty, Mrs. Crastell claimed, probably with the slight added embellishment of legalese from her counsel, quote, I never belonged to any sewing society to make clothes for the Confederates or their families, nor did I assist in making any clothing or military flags or other military equipments, nor did I aid in any way in preparing or furnishing delicacies or supplies for the Confederate hospitals or soldiers. I have given no aid to any soldiers except those of the Union Army." End quote. Her statement, disavowing any participation in the home front Confederate war effort, demonstrates the myriad of ways women participated in the conflict from within their own homes and communities. This coupled with the fact that she took a Union soldier into her own home as essentially a single mother bears witness to the sacrifices borne upon the shoulders of local women, not to mention the risk involved. For women in the shoals, like Mrs. Crastel, the war was not only far away fighting on remote fields of battle, but it entered their own communities and homes and personal lives in heavily intimate ways. Many of the barred and disallowed claimants also mention Rousseau in September 1864. Even though for various reasons their claims were unsuccessful, they still bear witness to an immediate and heavy burden in Lauderdale County, as Federal Cavalry halted their pursuit of Wheeler at the north bank of the Tennessee River. It is a pale foreshadowing of eerily similar events, which will take place in three months' time. September 10, 1864 the day specified in the earlier SCC petitions, is the day Federal forces caught up with the rebels at Florence. Major Generals Steedman and Russo were encamped at Shoal Creek, with expeditionary forces feeling towards Florence. Colonels George W. Jackson of the 9th Indiana Cavalry and George Spaulding of the 12th Tennessee were among the first to enter the town, skirmishing with the rebel rear guard as they came in. This dispatch explains the action which took place as the two sides were colliding in and around Florence. It's dated, quote, three miles and a half of Florence on the military road, end quote, which corresponds roughly to what is today Dybert Park. Quote, just as I reached this place, three men belonging to a detachment of 26 men sent out by Colonel Spaulding in the direction of Pride's Ferry caught up with the command and report that they were attacked by a force variously estimated near Cheatham's Ford. Learning this, I sent one battalion of the 10th Indiana in the direction of Florence to assist them and save those whose horses were exhausted, if possible, and to hold the advance of the enemy in check until I could communicate with you. I don't suppose the force is a large one. I will wait here until I hear from the battalion sent to Florence. From all the information I can gather, the force that attacked them is the same that I drove down the river this morning. End quote. By 11 a.m., Colonel Jackson had reached the city itself and took a moment to send the following dispatch. 
Quote, we met the enemy one mile east of this place, drove them into town, where they took cover from which we drove them. The enemy is said to be under command of Johnson and to be two regiments and one battalion strong. Mrs. Bodecker reports that the enemy were crossing at the mouth of Cypress Creek, one mile and a half below here. All last night they were crossing by ferry. As soon as possible, I will report the facts. End quote. An hour later, at 12 noon, he elaborated on the events of the morning and the federal position in Florence. Quote, I arrived here at 11 o'clock after driving the rear guard of Johnson's army, about 150 strong, in and through the town, and dispatched to that effect. Since then, from reports that I have learned, and all the information I can gather, the enemy were busy crossing the river by ferry at the mouth of Cypress Creek all last night. I have scouted the country above and below, and am confident that Johnson's entire force has crossed the river. Citizens report that Wheeler has crossed a portion of his force, and is now crossing the remainder of his men at two different fords below the mouth of Cypress Creek. Colonel Spaulding, having reached this place with orders to halt and feed, I have done the same, and am now waiting for further orders. I have just sent out a scouting party to go as far as Cypress Ferry with orders, if possible, to take possession of boats. will be governed by circumstances." End quote. He and Colonel Spaulding spent the day of the 10th resting and feeding their horses in the town of Florence, which doubtless led to much of the requisitions made upon the population, only a portion of which is detailed in the SCC documents. They also reconnoitered the surrounding countryside to answer the always nagging question of who was where doing what. Colonel Spaulding explained their findings from his camp two miles from Florence on the military road at 7.25 p.m. Quote, there is no enemy this side of the river in the vicinity of Florence. End quote. The effect of Wheeler's raid in and of itself was inconsequential in light of its larger strategic purpose of giving Atlanta a break by diverting Sherman's focus and breaking his communications. That purpose became moot when Atlanta fell on September 1st, when Wheeler was far, far to the north in East Tennessee, where he could do practically nothing to help General Hood prolong the rebel fight for the city. And indeed, ironically, the raid further helped to convince Sherman that, for the next and possibly final stage in the war, he could no longer rely on the railroad at all, and would instead turn to the local population deep in Georgia to keep his army fed, as he here explained on the 10th of September, quote, My command needs some rest and pay. Our roads are broken back near Nashville, and Wheeler is not yet disposed of. Still, I am perfectly alive to the importance of pushing our advantage to the utmost. I do not think we can afford to operate farther, dependent on the railroad. It takes so many men to guard it, and even then, it is nightly broken by the enemy's cavalry that swarm about us. The country will afford forage and many supplies, but not enough in any one place to admit of a delay." End quote. With Wheeler's withdrawal back across the Tennessee, federal forces largely withdrew as well to their respective command centers in the relative cozy safety of Middle Tennessee, where they had been before Wheeler came blazing through. It would, however, only be a brief pause, an intermission in the drama. Nathan Bedford Forrest was just off stage, gearing up to launch his own raid. 
Confusingly, all sources, Union and Confederate alike, indicate that, at the height of the drama between Wheeler and Russo, Forrest was paying an official visit to Mobile. Sherman telegraphed to Granger on September 14th, quote, Forrest and his command reached Mobile on the 8th instant. General Granger, therefore, need apprehend no trouble from any but Roddy, Wheeler, and all the parties that have already been in Tennessee, end quote. While Forrest indeed went to Mobile, it was a false sense of security that his absence provided. His orders were to return to the Tennessee River, gather up those forces of Roddy and Wheeler that could be spared, and strike again to the north side to render all the havoc he could muster, for which he had developed a particular skill. In less than a week from the date of Sherman's telegram, Forrest's men and horses would be drawing their water from the Tennessee River. Join us next time as we follow the events of Forrest's infamous raid and compare its efficacy with that of Wheeler's. We'll visit the dramatic and stunning surrenders at Athens and Sulphur Creek and see how the Federal Army responded while time is very nearly running out for the Confederates to save the fate of the rebellion in the West. Thank you so much for joining me.